This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. The last few hours of the week, uh, they are going to be interesting when it comes to the markets because we're talking about the virus. We're talking about Jobs Day. We've got a couple experts, some of our favorites, who really weigh in on the jobs report, but we're going to be asking them how the virus is affecting employment as well. Those numbers not reflected in the latest report very much, but we know they're thinking about it. And one of the things you're going to hear me say a lot over the next few hours is what was important about the strength going into the virus concerns. That's what that labor market or labor report shows us. And that's why it's really important. Because, I look forward to hearing you say that. Okay. Yeah. Try it. <laughs> Many times. <laughs> All right. Willa and wait. Uh, um, or I said, wait, you know. You said, wait, what? Wait, wait, what? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Let's try that again. Um, When I read in this morning, Jamie Dimon, emergency heart surgery, I was like, what's going on? I know. Yeah, when that headline crossed uh, last night, certainly uh, sent people scurrying for their Bloomberg terminals to try and figure out, look at that bench once again. Obviously, the first concern is Jamie okay? He appears to be. Right. Uh, But it was emergency surgery, emergency heart surgery, uh, one of the best known and uh, most watched names on Wall Street for sure. We'll get into what the implications of that are for him and obviously for the bank. And talk about that bench. Honoring women, International Women's Day. Check your calendars, folks. It's not only about pushing your clocks ahead one hour, but it's International Women's Day on Sunday. Right, and we're going to catch up with a couple CEOs, several of whom have been on this show before, including Jillian Meek, CEO over at Keds, and Jessica Honiger, one of our faves. She's the CEO at Noonday. And then wrap it up. Kate Crater. With Kate Crater, one of our favorite just people overall. Going to talk about the climate and a little bit about noodles. I think we're going to ask about that too. I had some delicious noodles for lunch. All right, we got to talk about the markets. I'm happy about your noodles, but let's talk about (laughs) the markets. Let's set the business week agenda. Uh, Vildana Hyrick is with us, cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg News in our interactive broker studio, along with Dave Wilson, our stocks editor here at Bloomberg News. All right, Dave, talk us through this market. What are we seeing? You know, I got to tell you, here's a comparison that really kind of blows my mind. Okay. If you look at the price of the 30-year Treasury bond, now we usually focus on yield, and obviously we got record low yields in the 30-year, the 10-year, pretty much across the board. The price of the 30-year bond is up 6.3% today. That's up more than all but one stock in the S&P 500. So it just goes to show you what's going on today is really as much as anything a function of what's happening in the bond market as much as the stock market. I mean, you look at, you know, why is it that financial shares are doing as badly as they are? I mean, the the biggest banks. I mean, it's not just Jamie Dimon, and that's part of it, because J.P. Morgan's down more than its peers. It's off by almost 6%. But you look at Bank of America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, declines more than 4% for all of them. And, you know, it's tied into the idea, you know, yields going down means interest rates are going down, means it gets harder for the banks to make money. We've seen this story before in Europe and Japan where they had negative rates. I mean, it is really something to watch, especially with what's happening in treasuries. All right, Vildana Hyrick, come on in here, looking across assets with your team uh, here at Bloomberg. What's the one thing that's really standing out as you talk to investors and you talk to your colleagues? Well, I was hoping to look back at 
this entire week with you guys Please. because if we think about what's driven markets this week at one point it was joe biden at another point it was optimism over the fed then it was pessimism over the fed then it was optimism over the government's response then pessimism over the government's response and so what investors have been telling me really is nobody really knows what's going on it's really really hard to try to price in what exactly is going to be happening in terms of the coronavirus impacts which is why you have investors shrugging off the jobs report this morning something that would typically move markets yeah exactly and you know what's interesting i think was it yesterday that we were looking at the weekly tally and uh or the day before we're still seeing gains for the week overall but that's not the case now uh because of uh another day of selling today well it's also a reminder and i'm, I'm glad you brought up that sort of back and forth phil donna because you know john authors when he was on with david weston just a few minutes ago made a really important but you know seemingly obvious point which is it's a reminder this week feels like that the markets ultimately are the reflection of humans in, in many ways. And there is a legitimate uncertainty and there's a legitimate, dare I say, fear that is driving a lot of this with little doses of optimism, little spikes of optimism coming yeah. through. So Monday we have a, an update, then we have a down day, then we have an update, then we have a down day. So it's really hard in speak, for me in speaking with people, I ask them, is it time to buy the dip? It's really, really hard for, yeah. for anybody to, to make that case right now, just because- Unless you're maybe a value guy. Like, you know, potentially, these people, yeah. these people have been so out of favor that, I mean, there are some opportunities. Howard Marks is buying. Correct, and talking with John Thompson yesterday of Vilas uh, Capital Management. Yeah, but you have to be okay with the idea that you are not going to get the low necessarily. Right. Because things are going to be that volatile. I mean, you look at the travel stocks today, it's a perfect example. They were beaten up earlier in the day, now you're seeing more of a mixed bag. I mean, you've actually got airlines higher. United's up three and a half percent. And yet the cruise lines are down. The hotels are down. You know, booking holdings and uh, online travel is down. So, you know, this is a market that really is, is kind of trying to figure out where we go from here as much as anything and struggling to do it with the fluctuations that we're seeing in share prices. And I think the problem is we don't have any clarity still about the virus. Like just the conversations that we have around the newsroom, it's like, wow, did you hear about this? Did you hear about this? And then everybody's saying, but we still haven't done a lot of testing. Like we don't know. Other folks are saying, I think it's overblown. Right. Uh, I think we're going to be okay. And I do think this is something that you will be able to at some point bookend. Here was the start and we're starting to see less cases. It's being contained. And I do think there is the potential for a V-shaped recovery where when people start to see the end of this. But that's the problem. We just don't know where the end is. And as far as bookending goes, I mean, one sort of detail that comes to mind, Starbucks mm -hmm. has reopened 90% yes. of the Chinese coffee shops that were closed because of the coronavirus. So it's already starting to happen there. Of course, it's going to be a while before right. you see a similar sort of recovery around the you world. You and I were talking about it yesterday. Yeah, We've absolutely. seen a lot of headlines from that company. And so you, that's, you can see that, you know, in terms of what China's doing and bookending it. All right. Thank you both so much. Vildana Hyrick, cross-asset reporter for Bloomberg. A busy week, we know. Dave Wilson, stocks editor. That is so true. so true. Charlie Pellet's dancing in uh, the studio, and that's exactly how we feel. 
Um, we did get the monthly jobs report. U.S. hiring surges. It was the biggest gain since May of 28. But keep in mind, uh, yes, it shows the labor market on solid footing, but it's all before the spread of the virus and the concerns. So as we've been saying around here at Bloomberg, it's stale data. So what do you need to know about the labor market and the economy? Joining us once again is Tendaya Kapfizi, uh, Chief Economist at Lending Tree, here back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Really, really nice to be uh, here with you once again. So it is still... Whoops, my mic just fell. It is still data, stale, yeah. stale data, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's irrelevant in a way, uh, but it's important that we have a strong labor market going into this crisis. Uh, so it does, you know, give us some room or some, uh, some cushion, uh, you know, as we deal with this uh, health crisis that's affecting the economy. All right, so knowing all that going into it, uh, what jumped out at you in, in terms of specific pockets of strength? We always count on you and you always deliver to really sort of take us down a level. What'd you see? Yeah, so before coronavirus, the big story of the economy was that we were having a really mild winter that was boosting a lot of weather sensitive sectors, uh, particularly the housing markets. We've seen big jumps in housing starts. And in this report and January's report, both had construction jobs mm -hmm. up over 40,000. So that was kind of the detail that stood out to me. Well, and I want to go back to this whole idea that we went into the virus on rather strong footing and how it, much better than if we you went. You said you were going to bring it up a lot. I did because <laughs> I think it's a solid point and I heard it this morning, like listening into uh, Bloomberg Radio, this whole idea that if we had gone into it on a weaker footing, this could be potentially more problematic. We'd probably hear the R word talked about a lot more recession. So how do you see that going into this virus on strong footing, uh, perhaps a more solid foundation, how does that help us perhaps? on the other side when we get out of the virus? Yeah, so I, I, one, I don't actually have like a recession probability for this particular crisis. You don't? But I, I don't. But okay. I would say it would be higher if we were going in on weaker footing, right? Um, and then uh, coming out the other side, it's really difficult to say. It really depends on the persistence uh, and how widespread the crisis gets. Uh, but, you know, certainly strong housing demand, which is probably going to continue because rates are now even lower than they were before. Uh, so that should be something that supports the economy, depending on how much this, this uh, health scare spreads. I told Jason, We're like pointing at each other. I know. <laughs> That's such an important point. Well, I said to Jason, and I tweeted out, because I was listening to surveillance this morning, they had a guest on it, and they said, you know, the financial folks want to talk about the markets and what's going on. Doctors want to talk about refinancing their mortgages, <laughs> which I find is such a great way of summing up what's going on. I mean, there is a reality, an upside to this low-rate environment, especially if you own a home. Yeah, I mean, it's the greatest time in history ever to refinance a mortgage. Uh, rates are down, you know, 40 basis points uh, from just three months ago. Uh, and really with the moves uh, yesterday and today are probably going to be down 50, 60 basis points, which means even if you refinance three months ago, you can save even more money by refinancing again today for each $100,000 that you've borrowed versus three months ago, say 40, 50 basis points decline in rates, you can save an extra $10,000 over the life of the loan, which is big money. Yeah. And so what are you here? I mean, you guys do an am amazing amount of research. I know you also have a window. One of the reasons, one of the other reasons we love talking to you other than you being very smart is you have so much data at your fingertips through your platform to yeah. understand customer behavior. Given what we know about the uncertainty in the economy right now, what are you hearing? What's sort of bubbling up through that data? Yeah, so our data is mortgage data. A lot of it is refinance data. So I'd say our data is actually 
um, kind of not telling us what's really going on in the economy, right? Because we're seeing volumes up just for this week compared to a week, the same week last year, up 600%, right? And it's because wow. of the fallen rates. Uh, and even January and February were already up 200%. Right. So it was already a very strong time for like mortgage and refinancing. And it's gotten even stronger, right. uh, which is, you know, probably the opposite of what's happening in most of the economy. Well, but I do have to ask you, like, synthesize that with the fear, candidly, that's yeah. out there. At some point, do you anticipate that some of that enthusiasm to refinance wears off a little bit because people are more, for lack of a better term, sort of existentially worried about, like, civilization for you know, not to be too over the top about well, it. Yeah, I mean, heavy. I, that got heavy. That got heavy <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a that's a fair point. Uh, what I will say, I, I think because when you refinance one, you don't really have to interact with anybody. You right. can just sit at home <laughs> and do it. It's one of the few economic actions that and you, you can actually take. And you already own the house. So it's not yeah. like you're yeah. going out and buying. You're, yeah. you're not sort of putting a lot of money to work. In fact, you're probably saving a little money ultimately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're saving a, a good amount of money. Um, the bigger risk is on actually on like home sales. Yes. Right. Uh, where, you know, one, you know, I was originally the, the whole week I've been talking about, hey, people won't want to go out and like look at homes, uh, you know, social distancing. But the other interesting thing that I've picked up the past couple of days is that people who are selling their houses don't want strangers walking through their house, touching everything. Right. Um, so there's actually going to be both a demand and a supply constraint on home sales if this continues and gets bigger and bigger. That's right. So somebody who wants to make a first time purchase, like there might not be the inventory because people are like, I don't want to in my home. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. It's I just saw a stat about how much uh, attendance at open houses has fallen really? in New York City already. All right. Tendai Kepfizi, always great to catch up with you, Chief Economist and for Lending Tree. And can we just say, tree. we're loving the sweatshirt. I know, you look great. We're, we're making it casual Friday from exactly. now on. Exactly. Somewhere Mike Bloomberg, uh, another alum of Johns Hopkins, is smiling. Thank you so much, Tendai. Great to see you. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Well, let's move to one of the most read stories of the day, and that has to do with Jamie Dimon, the CEO and chairman of Morgan, Morgan, JP Morgan, Jeepers, it's Creepers. Just, it's been a crazy week. It's been a crazy week. Michael Moore is with us, U.S. Finance team leader. Uh, tell us what happened with Jamie. I mean, this was a shock. I mean, they, the bank had their investor day last week, and he was on stage, as always, holding forth. Um, but yesterday before work, had some chest pains and took himself straight to the hospital rather than going into the office. And that probably saved him uh, because uh, this is a very acute uh, condition. Um, and, you know, a lot of people die before they even make it to the hospital if they don't think it's something serious. Uh, but luckily, uh, doctors were able to catch it early and uh, um repair it has he had any heart problems before or heart related problems not that we're, that we're aware of he had okay. throat cancer several years ago remember uh, that. and had to take some time away uh but uh this uh, seemed to be an acute thing right um so happily he seems to be recovering and, mm -hmm. and is doing okay uh meanwhile it has brought to the fore one of the most probably talked about succession issues right. on wall street I, maybe across all of corporate america you know it's been a running joke as you know better than I, that every time he's asked when he's gonna retire, he says in five years. He said right. that, I believe, over the last six years. Right. Uh, but what does this mean? What are people talking about now uh, in the wake of this, uh, of this surgery? 
Yeah, I think, you know, they are talking about it kind of on two tracks. There's the short term, which is uh, Gordon Smith and Daniel Pinto are the co-presidents. They're kind of stepping in and running day to day while he's out. Um, you know, the expectation right now is that he'll be back and that he uh, typically it takes a month of recovery, uh, according to the doctors we talked to. Uh, but, you know, th you never know someone's state of mind or, sure. you know, how how things progress. So. Uh, in the short term, it's those two. Uh, longer term, uh, there has been this succession plan of, uh, and as you mentioned with Jamie always saying five years, you never really know uh, when that's real and when it's not. Um, so uh, Marion Lake and Jen Peepsack were seen as two that were being groomed in that longer term. Uh, they both have served as chief financial officer. They somewhat swapped roles last year to try to get them both broader experiences. Uh, but they're, you know, both less than a year into that swap and right. uh, and are seen perhaps needing a little more time. So younger than Smith and Pinto. Right, right. right by about a decade. So uh, so there does seem like there are kind of two tracks here, the short term issue and what this means for the long term timing. Like you do wonder, too, if, you know, Jay, you know, Jamie Dimon comes back and kind of, you know, Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I've seen enough individuals where they go through, you know, an illness or something and mm -hmm. they kind of rethink, you know, how do I want to spend the rest of my life? And I do wonder this, you know, he has been with, what, 15 years with J.P. Yep. Morgan. You think about what he did in steering uh, the firm through the crisis and, and really, you know, the financial community looks to him for cues when we're in a state of financial uncertainty. But I do wonder, you know, what's to come. Yeah, you, you do wonder that, um, you know, everyone reacts to it differently. I yeah. remember Lloyd Blankfein joking that, you know, when he went through cancer, you, he said, I think you're supposed to learn something from this, but I get, didn't get that memo. You know? <laughs> well, and so, some double down because uh, they're like, yeah. I love this job. I'm just, right. you know, or whatever. And, and Diamond has always expressed that he loves that perch. It's a very powerful seat. He has in the last five years moved to more kind of like a, uh, policy mm -hmm. um, focus of yeah. you know expressing not just what's good for banking but you know his ideas for fixing America or and, politics like yes. you do wonder right right that he's been asked been constantly teased. whether he would run for president um, and it's because he's been out there publicly on some issues so right uh, he does seem to like that perch right and even if we do see a change in administration you do wonder whether he you know does take uh, some sort of job and a Biden or probably not a Sanders, but, uh, you know, potentially uh, a Biden administration. Uh, so what happens next? Sort of wait and see at this point, right? A month, you said, is the typical recovery? Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, this is, of course, complicated by the fact that you have this huge logistical problem of the coronavirus right. and people and J.P. Morgan splitting up trading yeah. teams and having people work from home. Uh, so certainly that does uh, complicate things at the moment but yes the typical recovery is at least a month and you know after that it's not you know fully in the clear you have to monitor your blood pressure sure. and so forth and these are not easy low stress jobs yes. uh, to, yes. to say the least all right michael moore thank you so much u.s finance team leader looking after all things wall street for us here at bloomberg some great context on jamie diamond and i should say we wish jamie uh, yeah the best. oh absolutely uh, what a titan yep. in this business and you know someone who has been at the fore speedy recovery you, uh alluded to during one of the most uh difficult times in the financial market. Yeah. JP Morgan shares, by the way, uh, down 7.8% at their lows today, still down uh, about 6.3%, but they've bounced off a little bit off of that low level. She thinks my tractor's sexy. It really
All right, well, that's up for debate, but farmers definitely fighting over she fixes. It's up for debate at all. <laughs> you, think, yeah. you think tractors are, are... John Deere? Come on. <laughs> all right, well, farmers are definitely fighting over fixes when it comes to um, the company that makes so many of them, John Deere. That story in our Bloomberg Business Week magazine, currently on newsstands, on the terminal, and at Bloomberg.com. Let's get into it with Bloomberg News Projects and Investigations reporter Peter Waldman. He is in our San Francisco bureau, along with our Bloomberg Business Week editor, Jill Weber. He's in our interactive broker studio right here in New York. Um, Peter, fascinating story. Set the scene. What exactly is going on? Sure. Um, well, across the Midwest, you've got farmers who are accustomed to repairing their own machines for decades and decades and decades. Um, they're quite manually inclined and like to do their own mechanical work. Uh, nowadays, with computers, digitization, um, software controls, uh, literally a modem under the farmer's tractor's seat, uh, it's much harder to work on a John Deere or any of the big manufacturer's stuff. It's all software driven and they can't fix their own stuff. And that right to repair has become the catchphrase here. Peter, it's also become a political issue, and some of the candidates, uh, Democratic candidates, have have really um, prioritized it. Um, wh why? Why does it have such political undertones? Well, Elizabeth Warren, in particular, a former candidate, she uh, last year campaigning in Iowa, which she did for quite a bit. Um, uh, was uh, smitten with the issue. She talked to farmers. She heard that uh, the right to repair their own farm equipment was meaningful to them, that they were concerned that the big um, uh, equipment manufacturers were monopolizing uh, parts and services, that they couldn't just hire an independent con uh, mechanic to fix their tractor and that they always had to get someone from a dealership to come out with software to reflash and recalibrate and it was very expensive and time-consuming so there was a real kind of grassroots interest and effort and in that case Elizabeth Warren caught on and she said there ought to be a national law that allows um, independent mechanics and farmers to have all the same software that the dealerships have and the big equipment manufacturers and their dealerships, most of whom are independent, uh, disagree. They have rejected that idea. And, and why? Why does John Deere want to keep it this way? Well, there are multiple reasons. The one that they talk about the most uh, is they cite safety concerns that these up to 20 ton combines and mega tractors uh, are dangerous if people go meddling with the software. Uh, a hacker or even a well-intended uh, farmer or independent mechanic could do something wrong and the next thing you know, uh, a big harvester is harvesting a house or a bunch of farm workers in a field uh, when it goes awry. So they're very concerned about that. The second concern they frequently cite is the interest of some farmers and some of their consultants and software providers and mechanics perhaps uh, in modifying uh, things such as emission controls, which is a big deal. There are strict EPA emission requirements on these big diesel systems and, um, and therefore a lot of uh, things equivalent to our catalytic converters, but even larger that really sap power and, uh, and energy efficiency or mileage so to speak, and uh, there's a big farmer interest in, in deleting that stuff through software, and the big companies don't want them to do that. There's also a third reason, of course, which is money. Right. Mm. Um, these exactly. are virtual monopolies. Right. Well, and, and Peter, it does feel like part of the reason this has caught on the way it did, 
that this has, and you alluded to this through the political discussion as well, is this is such an iconic company in so many ways. And it's one of these things that it's one of these issues, uh, rather, that feels relatively straightforward, in part because everybody knows John Deere. You know, I mean, we just played the song. There are many country songs we could have played that reference uh, John Deere. The public profile and the iconography of this company shouldn't be overlooked here, it sounds like. Absolutely not. It's a, literally a 19th century company founded by someone who forged uh, the, one of the early plows um, of that era anyway, and, uh, and then has increasingly automated things for the next 150 years. And they're at the point now that they're automating them sort of out of the hands of farmers, and that's what's upsetting people at the same time you can ask, you know, across the farm belt and even on the coasts where they farm a bit differently and usually smaller scale, but uh, you can ask people, well, you know, are you loyal to, to deer? How do you feel about their systems? And they'll, their, their common refrain is, well, we bleed green around here. They mm. love those green machines. So there's a great deal of loyalty to John Deere. Right. And this is sort of causing some, some tension. Paul, uh, Paul rather, um, Peter, you know what I want to ask you is that these machines and the amount of data flow that's being accumulated, sent up into the cloud, and I guess letting John Deere, you know, figure out how to make everything better has made these farmers much more productive. And so do they have a case, Deere being, you know, have a case and saying that, well, wait a minute, we really need to be in control of, uh, of this data and you farmers are benefiting as a result of it. Yeah, you're right. It cuts both ways, absolutely. That we all know automation, computers really improve efficiency, or in this case, uh, harvest and yield. So there's no question that they've benefited as well on the software side. Uh, I'd say it's probably a, a mix. I mean, they do certainly have a case that they cannot repair their systems. And there are some really debilitating situations. I mean, uh, it's very often the, these complex emission control devices on the newer systems that will go bad on a very cold day. And that takes a few hours for someone to come out from the dealer with a 10 yeah. or 15 minute software fix. It's ridiculous uh, how simple it is. So. There probably is a, a compromise that's reachable here where they can make available a lot more diagnostic and repair software and limit the modification side of things, which the companies certainly want to do. Peter, when you think about where big data and ag is kind of headed, where, where, do, you think, uh, where do you think the puck could go here? Um, I think that the the tide is is inevitable right that there are people mechanically minded and and we profile one very um, very closely in this magazine piece uh, his name is kevin kenny and and he's a a very firm believer that uh, uh, as he call it, hot riding is a national birthright that he ought to be able to work on a system or a farmer who pays six or eight hundred thousand dollars for a combine ought to be able to get in there and fix it uh, him or sometimes herself. But um, companies disagree. I, I think the companies are going to are going to have their way on this one. There's just too much embedded software, too, ma too many safety considerations and too much efficient efficiency gain. Right. So as I said, you're going to see an increasing amount of digitization in, in the whole farming agricultural field, literally down to the point where you'll get these prescriptions and software messages that will literally drive these things right. and control the steering wheels in the field down to a quarter inch where they where they plant a seed. It's yeah. unbelievable. Isn't that incredible? It's, it's, a, it's amazing. It's, and it's a great read, and there's so much in that story. Um, Peter, thank you so much. Peter Wallman, Projects and Investigations reporter, joining us from our bureau in San Francisco. Joel Weber. Thank you.
Do not touch it. Editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.